This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live weekdays 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, first of all, thank you for all of your lovely messages about the exit interviews kicking off with George Eustace this week. We'll have another one next week. Margaret Hodge is going to be on next week talking about her career in politics. So do post reviews, let us know on social media. You can get in touch with me, Matt at Times.radio. Right, coming up on today's episode, Rishi Sunak is heading off to Washington for the first time as Prime Minister to meet Joe Biden in the White House. So, in fact, we've got some handy listening for him while he's on the plane. A guide to the do's and don'ts of going to America for British Prime Ministers and political leaders. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, we kick off with today's Columnist Panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. And normally on a Tuesday, we would have Daniel Finkelstein in the Henry's effort, but Danny's off on a, on a world book tour. So Henry's here. Hello. Uh, and playing the role of Daniel Finkelstein <laughs> is Quentin Let's What a Quentin. Call me my lord, please. You've not... It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. They'll let anyone in there. Um, uh, yes, we, uh, good morning. Morning. Good morning. Welcome to... You, you've, have you been in here before? I've Not been, uh, been, I've been here once. I came to see Stig Abel. Oh, yes. To do his, his uh, electric radio programme. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, he was very good at it. I think he's got a future. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's survived so far. He's survived so far. Well, it's nice, nice to have you here. Nice to have you here. Um, let's start with uh, an interesting question. What should Keir Starmer do about Ed Miliband? Is sort of the exam question, Henry. But the background being this £28 billion black hole that is Ed Miliband. Yeah, the £28 billion is, is a battleground for, I think, some sort of broader fights that have been simmering below the surface uh, in the Labour Party, uh, probably for years, in fact, uh, when it comes to Ed Miliband. So actually, Labour have been committed to this for, for a little while, but no one really noticed, which is investing £28 billion a year and investing, of course, means borrowing to invest. £28 billion a year in various green projects. A bit vague on, on what green projects. Uh, and Labour's been committed to that for a little while. But in the last few weeks and months, you've had more and more uh, Labour people sticking their head above the parapet, by which I mean giving us anonymous source quotes, uh, saying, hmm, not really sure we can actually afford that. And there's, there's two dimensions to that. One is, can they afford it? But the other is, this would be spent by Ed Miliband. 
Ed Miliband is the Shadow Energy Secretary, but of course he used to be the leader of the, leader of the Labour Party. Didn't go that well last time he was in contact with the electorate. <laughs> and there are people in the Labour Party who are petrified that the Conservative election campaign uh, next year will involve them repeatedly saying, that party over there is going to let Ed Miliband borrow £28 billion a year and spend it. And they're worried that that won't go so well. And the, the, the interesting dynamic here, um, Quentin, of uh, Ed Miliband and Rachel Rees. When Ed Miliband was leader, he went through a couple of shadow chances. It was Alan Johnson and then Ed Balls. Though I definitely remember a period where people were urging him to make Rachel Reeves shadow chancellor. Uh, Rachel Reeves was probably urging that. Yes. Yes. Uh, which he didn't do. And now the tables have turned and she's got his, his, uh, his big project in the palm of her hand. Well, that may be one explanation for it, but she may, may, maybe just she's done the sums and, and, and has also done the electoral sums and worked out that uh, Ed Miliband perhaps is not a great um, electoral asset. I, I think when you put him on the television... Um, for the public, he just he reeks of political mothballs. There is something terribly um, retro about Ed. I'm rather fond of him as a sketch writer. He's he's my sort of guy. Um, has been for a long time. This is the last thing you want as a politician to be uh, the sketch writer's favourite. <laughs> well, no, but it means it, that no. That seriously though, it means that he has got a certain recognisability factor. Yeah. And when, when politicians become cartoonable, then in a way it means they've got cut through and that, you know, people at least think, oh, good old Miliband. But I think um, that on the whole, his, his green stuff is not very uh, likely to be popular at the election time. And it might not do Starmer any harm to be seen to be ruthless and to ditch the former leader. Um, and I don't think... Ed has got a tremendous following on the Labour backbenches, so I don't think it would cause tremendous trouble for... It's not Sarah. like William Hague, you know, serving alongside David Cameron in opposition and sort of bringing some of that experience. He doesn't have that same... Well, he does have ministerial experience. Yeah, he was, he was in Gordon Brown's cabinet. So there is you know, content, a certain yeah. uh, um, value to him. But I think the green stuff is just no, terrible. Do Labour, it will do Labour damage at the polls, I think. I think, I think what Quentin's right to hit on is that the reason Ed Miliband is there, it's not the sort of William Hague give grand fantastic to a younger leader because actually Keir Starmer's older, even though much less politically experienced. It's about ministerial experience, of which there is almost none on the Labour benches, yeah. let alone in the shadow cabinet. And that's also why he brought back Yvette Cooper, a shadow home secretary. It's why David Lammy has a senior role. He was a junior minister for a lot of the Blair Brown governments. Um, they are among... I mean, a, a real handful uh, of, uh, of Labour MPs who've been in government. And, and people in the Shadow Cabinet, uh, or people around Keir Starmer, actually, more precisely, say, you know, even those who don't really like having Ed Miliband there for comms reasons, as they would call them, um, actually pay tribute to his work ethic. And they say, you know, there are a lot of people in the Shadow Cabinet who don't know how to run things, who don't even know how to develop their own policy. And all credit to Ed Miliband, he's basically bludgeoned this into Keir Starmer's agenda by working really hard doing the doing the sums, doing the policy work and, you know, saying, look, here you go, no one else is giving you policy care and, and, and here's a green agenda for you. There was a vivid little description in one of the stories, I think it may have been one of Henry's stories, about how Miliband is just hanging round Keir Starmer's offices a lot and whenever people look around, there's, there's dear old Ed. He's rather tall, he's hard to miss, he's got this tremendous hairdo. Which much much taller well. than people think. He is, he's got yeah. very hairy ears too, I can tell you, but that's a different <laughs> matter. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the problem uh, with Starmer being ruthless, as I was suggesting earlier, is that we're also being told 
that uh, Sir Keir is losing, uh, he's falling out of love with Yvette Cooper. And, um, and now, would he, would he want to sack Yvette and Ed? Now, yeah. I think you can only, you'd have to leave one toffee in the box. <laughs> so I think you can't do both. Uh, so you'd have to choose. And I think the Miliband thing would be more, it would be more of a statement. And also, it would be a great reassurance to the public if they think that this green maniac has been dumped. But it's interesting. So it was on the front of the mail today, because this this twenty eight billion stories bubbled up again. Uh, families face a thousand year thousand pound a year bill for Labour eco plans. The mail says Labour's bonkers green energy plans will drive up mortgage rates. Uh, ministers warned last night because it'd be terrible, wouldn't it, if the government did something that drove up interest rates, wouldn't it, Henry? Right. I mean, so I think you you hit upon the <laughs> obvious Labour response, which is, uh, you know, how can that side talk about? <laughs> interest rates, trashing the economy, whatever. And and look, you know, Labour um, can make and will make credible arguments about, uh, you know, this being investment in the jobs of the future, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's that's a discussion that will be had in the election whether Labour want to borrow 18 billion or 10 billion rather than 28 billion. But but look, what is very interesting is that the, the quote that the Daily Mail got from Labour in response to that analysis did leave a bit of equivocation about whether Labour is still committed to that £28 billion a year. And the thing that people keep pointing me to uh, in uh, Labour is that Rachel Reeves has a fiscal rule that debt must fall as a share of GDP every year if she's Chancellor, and nothing comes uh, above that. And so if she decides, uh, perhaps in response to this bout of scrutiny, uh, that it is hard to see how the £28 billion a year meets her fiscal rule, then it's going to be jettisoned without question. So, you know, I do think Labour seems to be inching towards that sort of position. Is there any other job you could give Ed Miliband, or do you think it has to be that one? Well, he was actually in Keir Starmer's first shadow cabinet, shadow business and energy secretary, because at that time those yeah. departments were combined by government. And uh, Starmer ditched him from the business bit of it after a year and a half because businesses kept complaining that Ed Miliband he of Predators versus Producers fame, for those who remember that, uh, was not that interesting. That's in niche, even by um, the show stud. So, um, no, I mean, they've basically ended up with Ed Miliband being, you know, Shadow Secretary of State for the thing that Ed Miliband is all-consumingly yeah, passionate yeah. about. And so and actually, I think it would be should, hard uh, to... Keir Starmer does need to do a reshuffle at some point because his front bench currently doesn't actually match up to the government. Yes, although I don't think they've... It doesn't match up to the government because it doesn't have a shadow science secretary and Labour seem to still not be completely sure whether they want a science secretary in a Labour government. But but yes, I mean, he needs... He hasn't refreshed his team since uh, when? Sort of October, November-ish 2021? Uh, no, maybe 2022. No, 2021, right. So that's quite a while ago. And uh, yeah, I mean, he. It, it's implausible that he'll go into the 2024 general election with, with all the people who were right for him at that point. I mean, crucially, you know, we talked about people who have ministerial experience. There's still a few of them knocking around the back benches, Hillary Benn and so on. And there are people who were not enticed by the possibility of joining Keir Starmer's shadow front bench when it was three years and then you lose another election who now might be enticed by yeah. the prospect of actually going into government again. John Speller. Bring back John Speller. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask, who would you like to see? Who would the, would the Sketch Writers Guild like to see well, back at the dispatch box? The good Lord always provideth. 
and um, you'll find that, uh, you know, when one goes, another comes along. I, what would I do with Ed Miliband? I'd make him shadow leader of the house. Oh, yes. Because that's all you can always present that as a promotion to yeah. one of the great, shadowing one of the great offices. Well. And uh, the, the, the person that you've got doing it at the moment, uh, Thangham Debonair, she, she's pretty expendable. So I, I, would, um, I would say to Ed, the time has come in your career. You, you're now senior And enough. then you go in government, he could be the new Penny Morton. Yes, that's right. Walking around with a sword morning, noon, and night. <laughs> I mean, if you can go to the gym a bit before he does that. But, um, uh, I, I, I just, I, I think that um, it would also, if, if Miliband were to be zapped, it would be very useful for Rachel Reeves. It would really build her up yeah. as a bit of a character because, I mean, I don't like to say this too publicly, but there is a suspicion she's a bit of a dullard and um, the public don't haven't really cottoned on to her yet. But if she can be pre- presented as the woman who's, who, who freed us of Ed Miliband. Yeah. And then suddenly she becomes a slightly tastier proposition. Let's turn our attention now to uh, Rishi Sunak. He was down in Dover yesterday. Uh, I wonder what was the message that he was trying to land at his press conference? I will not rest until the boats are stopped. Stop the boats. How we will stop the boats. Our Stop the Boats bill passed the House of Commons in weeks. I said I would stop the boats and I meant it. I believe it's the country's priority as well to see the boats stopped. And so when I said I was going to stop the boats, I meant it. Yeah, that's very much the uh, the message he's trying to land there. Well, how good is he as a communicator? In our first exit interview yesterday, without going uh, MPs, he said they're going to stand down, I spoke to uh, the former cabinet minister, George Eustace. He said he thinks Rishi Sunak shares David Cameron's ability to think on his feet, which other prime ministers since David Cameron didn't. What I really loved about David Cameron, and I was his press secretary, is that even if he was put in a difficult interview and asked something really left field about some obscure local issue by a regional journalist... Like me. And you like you, <laughs> and you knew that he hadn't been briefed on it, and it was some road yeah. scheme that he might. Not, he could always manage it and handle it and carry it off, even if he's asked something that took him by surprise. Yeah. And you know, most of the other prime ministers we had after him, to be honest, if I saw them on television, I, I kind of used to fear for them. I, 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 I worried what they would say if they were asked something that they hadn't been told the answer to. So first of all, Quentin, the repetition of uh, stop the boats. Does that? Does that- is it, is it like long-term economic plan all over it again? It wasn't the only repetition he was doing. He was also doing, my plan is working, my, this plan is working, mm. our plan is working. Uh, so we had a tremendous lot of that too. There is this thing in politics and in wonkery that if you repeat the message uh, until it drives people mad, that is, only the, that is the point at which it's starting to work. And um, so those of us who <laughs> look at politics all day long get driven mad faster than the public because the public don't really take these things on board uh, as much. Um, but it is, it was, I mean, when you play it like that, it's pretty daft. <laughs> um, I suppose the, the whole point is, if he's doing that in response to all the questions at the press conference, it means that whatever clip the broadcasters indeed, use, you allow the message. And, that, and that's why they're doing it. I think, I think Sunak's are fairly smooth. I mean, what we're talking here about is smoothness, isn't yeah. it? And Cameron was fantastically smooth. I mean, he had pure sun-pat, smooth <laughs> peanut butter. Um, slightly cloying as a result, perhaps. But um, I don't think the public necessarily uh, like that. Yeah. I think the public uh, rather enjoy uh, indecision and in- incompetence in front of a microphone because it makes it more interesting. It, ma- it cuts it up and brings it to life a little bit more. Uh, Mrs May was straightforward dull. Uh, Boris was always chaotic. 
the trussette, uh, she didn't last long, so we didn't quite get long enough to get a, a full gauge of her, but uh, uh, she was she managed to combine both May's dullness and uh, Boris's hopelessness. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, uh, Sunak is, is very good when he's doing questions and answers at these things. Yeah. He's, he's like a, a Harvard... Um, or a sort of um, uh, 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 um, uh, Silicon Valley uh, professor. He's very quick on and knows everything. He's not so good in front of an auto queue when it all comes across as a sort of little bit too over over sincere. But I think he's I think he's reasonably good. It's an interesting point that George Eustace was making, Henry, about that sort of the spin doctor's fear that you can't put your leader in front of a microphone. And it was definitely true. But I, mean, I, I interviewed David Cameron an awful lot, even before you became Prime Minister. And I'd ask him anything. Like, when are you going to do, you going to do something about dueling the A303? Where do you stand on culling badgers? You know, the wind farms in court. And he would, I mean, he, and he would, the thing he was very good at was saying enough to sort of get him on the front of the paper without really committing to anything. And actually, part of the reason why Liz Truss got into all that trouble with the local BBC interviews she did wasn't just because the questions were brutal it's because she then sort of had a total meltdown in the responses well well, david cameron was of course a pr man by profession well that's true and uh you know perhaps some of the others who were less slick were you know a bit more averse to blundering into making a local news headline when they didn't necessarily know about the issue now you know one might be better for public policy i don't know but i can completely see why the other is better for the press secretary um i mean one thing that's interesting is that um you know, I've interviewed Keir Starmer or, or been in contact with Keir Starmer you know, various times over the years. And Steve Swinford and I went to interview him two or three weeks ago. And we both left thinking that he was so much smoother at the sort of Cameron-style thing, not that we put it that way, but what Eustace would call the Cameron-style thing of being able to fluently answer on whatever and be taken out of your comfort zone than he used to be. So if you're looking for a sign, if that's George Eustace's test of someone being prime ministerial, you know, Keir Starmer is, 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 is inching into that territory. Um, but, but I agree with Quentin. I mean, Rishi Sunak, I think that's his strength and that's why he's good in the House of Commons. It's very, very interesting to see a politician uh, suddenly slip into that mode. I remember with Cameron, I was doing the crew by-election. Come on, when that was, 2008 or something, was it? Uh, and um, the, the, we were all joshing with Cameron and suddenly it was time for him to do a local TV interview and he suddenly clicked. And it was like seeing a batsman suddenly in, in the net, suddenly producing a glorious off-drive. Uh, he was suddenly in a completely different mode. Uh, and one, uh, there was, um, uh, during one of the general election campaigns, Charlie Kennedy was... Dear Charlie uh, was was struggling with uh, economic questions, and Vince Cable was sitting at the back of the room, and Vince actually slapped his forehead in horror <laughs> at one of Charlie Kennedy's uh, answers. And the next day, it made no news at all because actually, what what had been said was so technical and boring that the the public weren't interested. Yeah. So I think the the political class gets a little bit over vexed about these things. It's interesting. I also think with Keir Starmer, he wears his confidence sort of on his sleeve and when things are going well he's really good at PM, he's much better at pmqs he's sort of the winds in his sails but if he's if he's behind in the polls and, and the, i think he 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 it, you could almost see sort of one step off the mic it's like a french rugby player <laughs> they're the same you're sort of you know plays with their mind yeah yeah he definitely has a sort of mojo yeah he's he got a mojo he's sort of yeah he's sort of a bit more on it yeah. um let's just uh bring you some breaking news gents this is exciting baroness hallett the chair who's chairing the covid19 inquiry has been talking about the decision the government's decision to contest her request for boris johnson's unredacted whatsapps let's take a listen the inquiry team has been working extraordinarily hard 
gathering all relevant and potentially relevant material. As has been widely reported in the media, uh, an issue has arisen between the inquiry and the Cabinet Office as to who decides what is relevant or potentially relevant. Oh, I'm not, I'm, I was hoping we might have actually heard the bit where she went on to say what the outcome of all that was. Um, uh, are you gripped by the ins and outs of WhatsApp groups? Oh, no, I'm not actually. But also spare us, please, spare us. Uh, people in officialdom telling them how hard they're working. I just, I bet they're not actually working extraordinarily hard. I bet they're just turning up and doing a, a nine-to-five day, so... Um... Oh, she, she went on to say, apparently, that uh, the, the Cabinet Officer challenging it in court, I can say no more about it. Oh, well. And then she made clear that she would decide what is relevant, and she believes the Inquiries Act supports her in doing Straight that. Straight to the top of page 94, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Where's this going, Henry? Do I have to... Page 94, I, I, sort of, I told you. Well, <laughs> I missed a lot of this last week and I was hoping it might have been resolved before I came back. Uh, it sounds like the end of the month it'll be resolved. Um, I mean, every legal eagle who's uh, opined on it uh, is pretty adamant that the government's going to lose. Uh, in fact, George Freeman, government minister, basically suggested the government's going to lose. Um, the government's position's a bit curious because um, while it is understandable, of course, that they don't want... Uh, WhatsApp's about kids' music lessons or whatever it may be, yeah. handed over to, or made public. Yeah. It's not at all clear that handing them over to the inquiry means that Baroness Hallett will then well, say, ah, oh, I'm going to publish for the public domain a bundle of WhatsApps yeah. about, you know, an official's kids' Matt music. Hanks, I, yeah. I do hope this inquiry is going to be bigger and for, for further reaching than WhatsApp messages. I mean, for goodness sake, we just that's the point, a, right? A, is a ruinous, of decisions a ruinous were made, uh, uh, over WhatsApp. Three hours of... Uh, uh, three just, years. Three years of of uh, Matt Hancock's... For goodness sake. But it, yeah. there are much bigger things to discuss here. I think Hallett's getting slightly sort of sticky gumbits yeah, yeah, in yeah. all the politics of this. Quentin Letts and Henry Zeffman there. And of course, you can read the both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Mr Sunak goes to Washington. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, 
it's Mr. Sunak goes to Washington. The Prime Minister's off to meet Joe Biden in the White House for the first time. It's the fifth time the two men have met since Sunak became Prime Minister, but it's the first time he's been in Washington. Fingers crossed the President's now learned his name. Sunak is now the Prime Minister. Yeah. Uh, Sunak will be looking to make a big impression this week, convincing American politicians and the media that the UK remains an important player on the world stage. Well, on the agenda for their talks, economic partnership, green subsidies, and the small matter of saving humanity from AI. But that first meeting in the White House is a big moment for any Prime Minister. Every PM, in fact, from Ramsay MacDonald to Boris Johnson's made the trip, but visits to the UK's closest ally... Uh, have had their ups and downs. Liz Truss, in fact, is uh, in so many ways is the exception and didn't actually make it to the White House while she was PM. When Winston Churchill first visited FDR at Christmas 1941, two weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbour, he made quite the impression. As well as the global politics, the trip was studied with sort of classic Churchillian moments, including Churchill insisting he must have a tumbler of sherry in his room before breakfast, a couple of glasses of scotch and soda before lunch, and French champagne and a 90-year-old brandy before he went to sleep at night. Howard Wilson got an invite in 1962, two years before he actually became Prime Minister, as he struck up a close relationship with John F. Kennedy. Wilson then returned home with a host of campaign trips, including copying JFK's language and style, holding mass open-air rallies in stadiums, using celebrity endorsements and promising 100 days of action if he was elected, Wilson then called Kennedy an inspiration following his assassination the year after his trip. A young man cut off with only a small fraction of his work completed, but a man who has given an inspiration to those who come after him. Margaret Thatcher, of course, was a great Atlanticist, but she struggled to cosy up to her first US president, Jimmy Carter. Here she is making a joke that went quite close to the bone on her official visit. I hope you won't mind, Mr. President, my recalling that George Washington was a British subject until well after his 40th birthday. <laughs> I've been told, to my surprise, that he does not have a place in the British Dictionary of National Biography. I suppose the editors must have regarded him as a late developer. <laughs> Yeah, jo jokes about the Civil War uh, crop up quite a lot. Margaret Thatcher, of course, got on better with Ronald Reagan. Here he is paying tribute to her on the south lawn of the White House as his presidency came to an end. Prime Minister Thatcher, here's a story from our old West. It's said that a cowboy went riding one day and suddenly stumbled into the Grand Canyon. And he's supposed to have said, wow, something sure has happened here. Well, Prime Minister Thatcher, when we contemplate the world as it is today and how it was when we first met here eight years ago, we too have a right to say something sure has happened. Tony Blair sidled up to Democrat Bill Clinton during a visit in 1998. On so many issues, we think alike. We are in politics for the same thing. Because we want to modernise our countries in preparation for the new millennium, because we believe in freedom, in fairness, because we want greater prosperity for our people, a better standard of living for what you call Middle America, what I call Middle Britain, the majority of hard-working, decent people who play by the rules. 
And then, of course, when America switched sides, so did Tony Blair, switching his enthusiasm to the Republican George W. Bush four years later. Mr. Prime Minister, welcome. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And Well, I was delighted to come here, and I've been really enthusiastic about our meetings so far. They've been absolutely excellent, very productive. So, what can Rishi Sunak learn from some of those trips. Stuart Wood was a foreign affairs advisor to Gordon Brown as Prime Minister and then later worked for Ed Miliband. Morning, Stuart. Hello, how are you, Matt? I'm very good, I'm very good. And Sir Peter Westmacott was British ambassador to the US when David Cameron was Prime Minister. Morning, Peter. Morning. Uh, Peter, From uh, to take us through, because obviously if you're the ambassador, you're already there. Take us through what happens when Rishi Sunak steps off the plane. <laughs> well, hopefully the British ambassador will be there at the bottom of the steps. I remember once... Uh, greeting the then Prince of Wales and I was stuck in a traffic jam so I didn't quite uh, make it in time for the arrival of the aeroplane but I'm sure Karen Pierce, the ambassador will be there so then there's a great long convoy as always with motorcades and things in the United States depending on what the nature of the visit is uh, there can be a wonderful White House garden welcome I remember in 2012 when David Cameron came over there were the gardens were in bloom, the roses, the magnolias. It was absolutely fantastic. Thousands of people in the White House garden. This will not be quite the same. It's a smaller visit. Uh, it'll be a, a working visit. There's lots to discuss. And of course, one of the first things that will happen as you go in the basement of the White House, the West Wing, there will be the almost obligatory demonstration of, well, here's the blackened doorway into the kitchens from where the Redcoats burnt the place down in 1814 at the towards the end of the War of 1812. So there'll be all those bits and pieces of going to the White House for the first time, but there'll be a very warm welcome. And you've got in President Biden, somebody who is both English in terms of his roots, but also Irish-American Catholic, and very pleased that he's got a prime minister visiting the Oval Office now, who has, if you like, done the business in terms of sorting out the Northern Ireland Protocol with the Windsor Framework and is feeling that the UK government is moving in the right direction on something which we need to remember, he holds very personal, very dear, the whole business of the stability of Ireland following the Good Friday Agreement. But there's loads else to discuss as well. But I think the atmospherics will be good. They'll be pleased to have a prime minister who's getting stuck in and re-engaging with Britain's uh, allies and friends around the world. Stuart, uh, take us um, into sort of the mindset of when you're in you're in Downing Street. You're trying to get that meeting in the White House. What what's what you're you're hoping when you're there on the plane with with uh, with Gordon Brown with the Prime Minister? It's a big moment, isn't it, for British Prime Minister? Although we talk about the special relationship, you know, America is the biggest bigger partner in that. It's a big moment for Prime Minister going to the White House for the first time. Yeah, it is. It's it's both exhilarating and extremely frightening because one small thing going wrong means it gets exaggerated hugely by the media because, as you say, it's a mark of how seriously Britain is taken on the world stage and how seriously the main alliance is taken by the incumbent of the White House. So all those things are important. I mean, what happens is that there's weeks and weeks of work that go into essentially a few hours of choreographed meetings. Um, and Peter Westmacott, you know, will know this from his his time, and I'm sure Karen Pierce will have done the same thing. You're worrying about a number of things. I mean, there's massive issues. I mean, at the moment, there'll be issues on the Inflation Reduction Act and all sorts of issues on climate change, on on artificial intelligence, on the world economy, it's and the Ukraine war. But there'll also be the small things, which, if they go wrong, can get amplified in a way that can be unfair, but it's the way it works. I mean, there's all the issues of the gifts and the exchange ah. of that. There's the, is- there's the issue of the status of the visit. I mean, we, we had an issue once when 
I remember we landed on the tarmac in Washington and on my phone was a message from the chief of staff saying, by the way, we're not going to do a full press conference. We're going to do what they call a spray. A spray is when the president, the prime minister sit in those armchairs in the Oval Office and the press are sort of whittled in in batches to do 30 second chats and photos and they whistle out and the next batch of press go in and, and a spray was considered less of a, a, a mark of less respect than a full press conference. So you have all these little small status uh, signs um, which which occupy way too much time. So all those <laughs> things, all, all those things at once. And then there's the question of who attends what lunch and, you know, who sits next to the ambassador and which advisors get invited. So all, all for the minions level, all that stuff is, is going on at the same time that the prime minister themselves are very nervous, right? Because they're meeting the president and they have two hours or an hour and a half or whatever it is to get through, a you know, and most, the most important bilateral meeting they'll probably have in, in that year. Since you actually mentioned gifts, Stuart, we need, probably need to talk about... Gordon Brown gave Barack Obama a very thoughtful gift, a pen holder carved from the timbers of the sister ship of the one the White House desk is made from, and a first right. edition of a seven-volume biography of Winston Churchill. And Barack Obama gave Gordon Brown a box of 25 DVDs, including Raging Bull, Casablanca and The Graduate. Yeah, I'm fat. I've still got them in a bag. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And 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 I think they were they were region one deep. For those people yeah, who remember, he couldn't even the DVDs, play them. They were region one, not region two DVDs. So they 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 did, had difficulty being played over here. Yeah, that that was a, that was an issue that, that got blown up um, beyond its uh, beyond its interest and significance. But yeah, we put a lot of thought into those presents, and I guess they didn't put quite as much thought <laughs> in the presents back. Um, we should also talk about, in fact, you met, I think we've got a little clip, actually, of the, um, of the spray. I didn't actually realise that's what it's called, but they sit by the... So, they, not a full press conference when uh, Gordon Brown went uh, to the White House in 2009. Just this chat by the fireplace where sport... Sport seems to come up a lot in these conversations. Let's take a listen. I've, I've enjoyed every conversation that, uh, that we've had, uh, both on, by the telephone and when we've uh, met. I don't think I could ever compete with you at basketball. Perhaps tennis. Tennis, I hear tennis, you got a game. Yeah, we could maybe have a We haven't tried it I don't know if you, I think you'd be better. But there we are. Gordon Brown there challenging uh, Barack Obama to a tennis match. And then when David Cameron went in 2012, when you were there, Peter, Barack Obama took him to a university basketball game and they took questions during halftime. Let's take a listen to that. I'm enjoying it. It's, it's fast. It's uh, pretty fast and furious. It's hard to follow sometimes exactly who's done what wrong. Was our president helping you follow was, the game? He was giving me some tips. He's going to help me fill out my bracket. So... Uh, <laughs> And he's going to teach me cricket. Yeah. That's oh, oh, That's okay. right, because That's I don't understand what's going on. Now, Peter, um, we're going to find out a bit more about this a bit later on, but there's even a suggestion that, that uh, Rishi Sunak, not just going to a basketball game, but might even throw the first ball. Um, uh, is are those small things, the, the sort of the human parts of these meetings, as important as the sort of the policy stuff, the checklist of things to get through? Because for lots of people, so what's the point of meeting in person these days? You could just speak on the phone. Does it matter that actually built, finding some way of building up a human connection is, is still important? I still think the personal relationships matter, Matt. Yeah, I mean, yes, you pick up the telephone. Of course, you pick up the telephone to the President of the United States. It goes through so many different filters and people taking the record and listening that there's always a clunk click and a delayed conversation. And it's not the same thing as talking face to face. But the personal banter, whether it's flipping burgers in the garden of <laughs> Downing Street uh, or whether it's going to the match or throwing the first pitch at a, at a baseball game, yeah, these things matter. Uh, it is quite often a, a, a treat that's offered to visiting politicians. Part of the game is also to show that you're not really 
uh, a serious player and, and therefore not to not to pitch the ball very skillfully. But uh, I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Uh, Rishi Sunak, I gather, is quite a mean cricketer, so he'll know how to pitch the ball. So, yeah, these personal elements and going to a game together, uh, doing things in the garden, working with kids, which I remember Michelle Obama liked to do with, with visitors mm. on a charity function. These things matter. And I think that personal relationships are often as important as, you know, reading the brief and getting the policy stuff right, because you can do all that. And I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that the prime minister is one who, who does master the brief and does get into the detail, but not going to make much difference if you haven't got the relationship with the person on the other side of the table so that you can make some progress together and, and sort stuff out. So I think that's important. And then you've, you've got to also work out because officials would have given you a long list of a long agenda yeah. for your two-hour meeting. It'll be two or three times longer than you've got time to think. <laughs> to so you've got to prioritise. You've got to work out what you're kind of trying to get out of it. And, and sometimes the quiet word in the in the doorway before you start the proper meeting between people who have a good personal relationship is makes all the difference between a successful meeting and something which is, if you like, formulaic. And Stuart, you also went to the White House with Ed Miliband uh, about a year before the 2015 election. Um, again, yeah. DVDs in a carrier bag uh, under the table is a gift that Ed Miliband took for Obama. Do you think we will see a moment where Keir Starmer will be trying to get an invite to the White House ahead of the election? That's a, that's a good question. That's always a diplomatic nightmare for the ambassador uh, in Washington to try and get some kind of relationship without breaching the protocol of the sitting government being upset that the opposition is going to get access. I mean, there is the Democrat Labour sister party connections. Uh, Rachel Rees just went, as, as you may know, yeah. as some of your listeners may know, uh, and, and saw some, you know, saw Janet Yellen and saw some senior people. So it's possible. Um, I think that the trick for Keir Starmer will be not to try too hard so that people like you get hold of it and then it doesn't happen because then that looks like a snub. That is so a snub, yeah. That, that's, that, that's the problem. I just want to go back to something Peter said. This personal relationship stuff is it, something that your listeners may not think is that important. It's, it's very important to the wiring behind the scenes between the president and the prime minister. So I'll give you an example. When, when Gordon Brown, before he became prime minister, but when everyone knew he was going to become prime minister, the, the, the Bush team at the time were, were very worried about Gordon because he wasn't Tony Blair and they'd obviously had a good relationship with Tony and Gordon wanted to put a little bit of distance between himself and Tony's position on Iraq in particular. So we went out, just the two, two of us went with Gordon Brown for a meeting with, which was ostensibly with Bush's um, national security advisor, but Bush was choreographed to wander in the room and we oh, had an yeah. hours unofficial boy. meeting yeah. in which I remember B Bush's first line to Gordon was, I have always admired your passion on Africa. That was his sort of opening, <laughs> opening olive branch line. And actually they got on much better than yeah. you might have, one might have thought. And that relationship became quite important during the financial crisis because Gordon, I remember, we were in Boston and we actually basically rang up the White House and said, look, we'd like to come and visit you. We're, we're in a plane. Can we come down? And and I think the relationships that he'd established meant the Bush and his team were much more receptive to us than perhaps the Blair team thought they would be or even the Bush team thought yeah, they might yeah, yeah. be. So it does make, these things do make a difference yeah, yeah, yeah. to what you can do after you've established a relationship. Stuart, really now, good to speak to you. Uh, look, uh, Stuart Wood there, foreign affairs, former foreign affairs advisor to Gordon Brown, and to a bit about it, and to Peter Westmacott, uh, Br former British ambassador to the US when David Cameron was prime minister. Now, given Joe Biden's uh, trip and fall last week, maybe we should soon out will end up having to hold hands with the president. That's, of course, what happened with Theresa May, when she went to see Donald Trump in 2017. Katie Perrier was there. It's Theresa May's Director of Communications. 
There were some ideas mooting around the building that we would go and have coffee in Trump Tower or we'd have coffee in the White House and journalists will be in Trump Tower watching us through live link having coffee. And I said, uh, I think I'm going to resign if we have to do that because um, that's an absolute embarrassment. Nope, we are Britain. We are doing a press conference. Uh, and there are things you need to talk to me about, don't you, Prime Minister? And so I um, played off uh, each side. I told um, Trump's team under Sean Spicer that uh, we definitely, definitely wanted a press conference uh, and told the Prime Minister that Trump was well up for a press conference. And neither of those were quite true. But I got my press conference in the end because I didn't much fancy going all that way just for a coffee around the fireplace. And the press conference was pretty remarkable, actually, because there have been lots of questions about Trump's positions on lots of things. I think NATO being a prime example. And Theresa May just sort of bounced him into committing to NATO. We've reaffirmed our unshakable commitment to this alliance, Mr President. I think you said you confirmed that you're 100% behind NATO. I mean, and she did it brilliantly. And it wasn't as if we did this huge plan about it. Of course, we've mentioned it in prep. But she took the opportunity and took the moment. And of course, many phone calls later, um, Trump took a style which is quite bullying and tried to push her around. But as I explained to her when I really wanted a press conference, he was the novice. She was someone that was very used to doing this. And so actually, be the, be the first, be there and, and take the lead. And he'll, he'll look to you uh, for that lead. And she took advantage of that and absolutely nailed him on a 2% contribution on, on uh, GDP for NATO. Uh, and so uh, that was something that I think was the, the big win uh, of, of the event, really. But of course, in the run-up to that, we were a little bit slow in terms of those phone calls between, you know, little journalists are always like, are you first in the queue? Did Macron beat you? Did Merkel beat you? Whatever it might be. And we didn't do brilliantly on that. And so the inauguration, uh, post-inauguration visit was the moment to basically say, you know, we put right that and we are, you know, on an even footing uh, in our special relationship. But it was the most bizarre visit because uh, his behaviour was not what quite we expected. I mean, we knew it would be a little bit extreme in terms of uh, difference from previous presidents. But um, we previously, uh, under Theresa May, met Barack Obama, uh, and in, not in America, in a different country, in China, uh, at a conference. And, of course, it was a very, very different experience. Uh, and so um, whilst uh, she did a great job of enrolling him on NATO, we were in his hands on a lot of other things, and he did have a bit of a go at me um, later on. And then he did something else as well, which he... Um, he shook all of our hands in a queue, and when he shook mine, he anti-backed it immediately afterwards. <laughs> I was most offended. So what did he have a go at you about? Because obviously there's, there's, there's sort of two parts to any visit like this. There's the press conference, the United Front, and the announcements or whatever that you want to you make. But there's, there's the, there were people meeting for the first time, face-to-face, across a table. So tell us a bit about the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff that, what, that went on, and why did he have a go at you? Well, there's huge amounts of prep that goes into this kind of stuff, minute by minute. You know, what, what's the kind of picture going to look like? What's the big set piece? Uh, How is this going to play out? But you're in the hands of someone that is so unpredictable. My first problem and my first worry was that he would just let this press conference run and run and run. Uh, because he had form, I, I would sit and watch his previous press conference and recoil in horror thinking, oh my God, I've made the Prime Minister do this and now maybe I'm going to regret it. As I sat down in the press conference, uh, a senior person at number 10 looked at me, winked and said, well, this is either make or break and you might be p picking your P45 up on the way out. And I said, don't I know it, cupcake. <laughs> Uh, and so it was a very kind of um, uh, stressful moment. Um, but uh, I told Sean Spicer that I don't go for long press conferences. And uh, you get your questions, we get our questions, maybe there's one or two wrap up, and then we get out of there and we go to our lunch. And uh, if I think it's going on too long, I will be the mad woman at the back of the room that says, thanks very much, everyone. 
Uh, and Trump said to me on the way in, apparently you're a bit of a handful, so I will stick to the questions because otherwise you're going to kick off. And I said, yes, I'm afraid so, Mr. President. Uh, and so he actually did that fine. He asked his friends from Fox News the questions. Uh, we gave our questions to British journalists who say what they want. You can't tell them or ask them what to say. Uh, I chose Laura Koonsberg from the BBC and Tom Newton-Dunn from The Sun uh, and um, at the time. And Laura really socked it to him, as I suspected she might, uh, and uh, didn't hold back. This was your choice of a question? <laughs> there goes that relationship. Um, and I got the look. I got the look from Theresa May, and I got the look from Donald Trump. And on the way out, he said to me, "You know, you need to up your game. Uh, you, call, they, you call them your friends." And I said, "No, we, we live in a democracy, Mr. President. They hold us to account. Uh, you know, we, we're used to this every day." Uh, he didn't like that very much. Uh, so then he went on to anti back his hands after he touched me, um, and uh, and then gave me glaring looks all the way through the lunch afterwards. <laughs> Uh, Katie Perrier there, uh, former Director of Communications for Theresa May. Well, like Theresa May, Rishi Sunak is a big cricket fan, which could come in useful for him on this trip. Lots of talk that, like many small-town mayors, governors, celebrities, and even presidents before him, he could be asked to throw the first pitch at a baseball game at the home of the Washington Nationals. So... Uh, we thought we'd uh, maybe maybe he's listening to the, maybe he's listening back to this on the podcast as he flies out to Washington. We thought we'd give him some helpful advice. Let's bring in Josh Taylor, the pitching coach of the GB National Women's Baseball Team. Hi, Josh. Hi. How are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? Uh, yeah. Give us some advice then on uh, the significance of throwing the first pitch. Oh, throwing the first pitch. It's uh, it's a, a privilege. You know, it's often saved for people who've done great things in the community. You know, or in this case, like political figures. So it's 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 had some amazing people over the years um, get up there just just to represent. You know, being upstanding citizens generally, um, and in some cases, you get the odd celebrity. Um, there is obviously a lot of pressure on it though, because um, every first pitch is recorded, and some, uh, like Fifty Cent, for example, have gone down in history as some of the worst throws of all time. <laughs> now, and the key thing is, it's quite, it's a long way, isn't it? It's like sixty feet or something. It doesn't look that far on the, when you're watching on the on the TV. But from from yeah, where it's... you're standing to, I, I'll be honest, I've lost the jargon already. Is it the mound and the plate? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yes. it's, it's it's exactly six, it's sixty foot six inches. So it's uh, it's about the length of uh, a cricket green. So. And what would be your your advice to uh, to Rishi Sunak? Does he sort of do uh, do it badly because that's sort of what it's expected of politicians, or should he sort of because you don't look like you're trying too hard? Yeah, this is it's, it's a fine balance. Um, so my personal advice would be don't overdo it because if people think you're trying and you're bad, that 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 could come across as embarrassing. Um, but my advice would just be to to float one across, little bit of effort, but don't don't be intentionally bad because. Um, again, as I said, it will it will live for eternity in uh, in social media, and uh, I honestly not 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 the best. <laughs> I honestly couldn't think of anything worse because I'm, I'm quite bad at throwing. Um, should he do the full, you know, the thing when you lift your leg up that they do when you when you're watching professionals? How much? How how should he just throw it? Should he like really, you know, lift one leg up and put his back into it? I mean, I would I would love to see it. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. Yeah, I think it would be great fun. Um, you know, but it, realistically, nice and simple, step and throw, uh, stay nice and loose and, you know, uh, try and ignore the uh, the thousands of people watching. Uh, 
get an experience of what it's like to be a professional baseballer for a day. And his baseball, I mentioned with the pitching coach of the GB National Women's Baseball Team uh, here in the UK. Yeah. Is baseball becoming bigger in the UK? Massively, mate. It's uh, it's, it's it's increasing at an exponential rate, and we're seeing that with interest. Um, obviously, pre-COVID with the London series, but thankfully, um, it's coming back this year with the, the Cubs and the Cardinals. Um, at this moment in time, we've got so the British Baseball Federation, so the BBF. Uh, as around 90 affiliated teams um, and about 25 outside of that in independent leagues and around 10 in Scotland, which equates overall to about two and a half, three thousand 3,000 players, um, including uh, many women's teams, obviously, that are uh, starting to pop up all over the show, which is, which is great to see getting, getting the women into the sport as well. Absolutely, Josh. Really appreciate your uh, your your time today, and I'm sure Rishi Sinat will appreciate your your advice. That was Josh Taylor, the pitching coach of the GB National Women's Baseball Team. We also heard from Katie Perrier, uh, Stuart Wood, and Sir Peter Westmacott. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts from. Get in touch with me, Matt at Times Radio, if you want to complain or say you like the podcast. That'd be lovely. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.